I don't know if we have any Seinfeld fans in the house. And be like, Seinfeld, two people in the whole church. <laughs> the title of the message this morning was inspired by a Seinfeld episode. It's actually the title of that episode, and it's called Serenity Now. I don't know if anybody ever knows, remembers that uh, that episode, but Frank Costanza, George's dad, has high blood pressure. He tends to get worked up about stuff. And so uh, he's told that one way to calm him down is that anytime he starts to kind of feel he's getting a little frustrated or worked up, that he's just to say serenity now, and that's supposed to bring him a measure of peace. And it doesn't quite work according to plan. And so if you don't remember it, we got a little clip we'll show you. Serenity now! 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 Serenity Well, it was supposed to calm him down. I don't know if yelling it was sort of the idea, and uh, but the the notion was that he was supposed to get calm, and I don't think it worked that way. And though it makes for funny TV, I think that uh, in real life, it's not funny when we can allow so many things to steal our joy and our peace. And when we can try all kind of different ways, whether it's phrases or books or, you know, drugs or whatever it is, distractions, to try and find joy and peace, only to have it remain elusive. And so serenity is a word we don't really hear very often, right? And it's a state that we attain even less. The dictionary definition of serenity is this, the state of being calm and peaceful and untroubled. Like that last word, untroubled. And if, if we think right now, even in our own lives where we are, how many of us can say we're, we're peaceful we're calm, we're untroubled. And yet peace, a peace that surpassing under, surpasses understanding, it's what's, it's what's promised by God. See, to the world, if things are going good, then they feel good. If things are going bad, then they feel bad. And so we're just all sort of reacting to stimulus, whatever happens around us, and we're up and down and, and we're emotional. But God's people were called and, and equipped, more importantly, to live differently. That in the midst of chaos, we can still have peace. That in the midst of discouragement and anxiety and distraction, that we can still walk with a sense of serenity. And so, as is often the case with my sermons, I tend to preach from what I've learned, from what God is showing me, a lot of times currently showing me. And then I, I share biblical lessons that I think will be of practical benefit to others. And so this morning's message is no different, inspired by things that de- the Lord's been dealing with me on. Having, had me think, thinking and focusing on the serenity prayer. I don't yell it out loud. Sometimes I want to, but I don't yell it out loud. But in ministry and in life, things are often messy, aren't they? You know, I, I love that phrase you just saying, gracefully broken. I like to describe the church as a beautiful mess where God is in the midst. And so, 
people laugh when I tell them that I like to cut the grass and I like to do dishes. And the reason I like to cut the grass and do dishes is because the grass is long and then it's short. The dishes are dirty and then they're still dirty. No, and then they're clean. (laughs) But there's a sense of accomplishment. There's a sense of completion. And I'm a task guy. And I like to, to, you know, make lists and then cross things off the list. And sometimes what happens in life, you know, it reminds me of, of a joke at the beginning of the summer. I wanted to lose 10 pounds and I only have 20 left to go. <laughs> sometimes we can see like, we're, we're, not only are we not crossing things off the list, but we're going backwards. So I started the day, I had 10 things and now I have 15 and I've been working all day. And so it's easy to get discouraged and caught up in the mess and to not understand why is it that things aren't working out? Why is it that things are so chaotic? How am I supposed to have peace? Even when we're doing the right thing. Or maybe our our motives are are pure or in the right place, so it's easy for me to recognize sin when when it's like selfish ambition. When I get frustrated because I don't accomplish my goal, then it's easier to identify that as maybe not of God. But when my frustration, when the things I'm, I want to happen are things that are good for other people, when you're trying to minister to people, when you love on people and they keep doing the same thing over and over again, it gets discouraging. And so I'll look at people and I'll be like, man, what do you, you know, you keep doing that. And, I, and you get frustrated and you get aggravated. And then, you know, God, and the way he does, he just tells me, that's how I felt watching you like most of your life, buddy, you know. Like, have a little patience, right? But that happens. We can get frustrated. We can get discouraged when things get messy around us. When ministry gets messy around us. Because life is never orderly or neat or perfect, is it? And more often than not, things are difficult. But here's our comfort, church. God is in the mess. The scriptures reassure us again and again. John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Or be encouraged. Or rest assured I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying it's temporary. You're going to go through tough stuff. But you can still have peace in me. You can still have peace in me because I've overcome the world. Because you're just passing through. Because this too shall pass. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, I I know that we read scripture to read through it, you know, to get through the Bible in a year or to to read books, and and that's good. Studying is good. But sometimes I think we just need to meditate on the shortest of verses. Because I don't know about you, but my Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. It doesn't say I might be with you, for I am your God. And then it doesn't say, I might strengthen you, maybe I'll help you, perhaps I'll uphold you. It says, I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you. And some of us, that's what we need to hear. This isn't Pastor Brian's message, this is God's word. And this is God's word saying, fear not, 
Whatever you're going through, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Don't get discouraged. I'm your God. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to help you, and I'm going to uphold you. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Always. Even in the mess. Particularly in the mess. You know when my kids get most of their attention? When they do something wrong or when they need me the most. I don't love them less. I love them the same. But when they're really struggling, they get more of me. And that's the kind of father God wants to be. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. Deuteronomy 31.8. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So this morning we're going to look at the source of our peace. And we're going to look at some practical ways to preserve that peace of Christ. Even in the midst of chaos. Especially in the midst of chaos. Particularly in the midst of chaos. So take a moment, say hi to somebody near you, and then we'll continue. Lord, would you meet us here in this place? Father, would you minister to our spirits, God? Would you give us spiritual eyes and ears? Would you grant us your peace? God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust you more. Increase our faith. Have your way in this place, God. Help us to release to you, to open our hands to the things you want to take from us that you can give to us the things you want to give us. And please, Lord, have your way in our lives so you can have your way through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was thinking through um, kind of what I was going through and the frustration, and, and because I'm such a, you know, I want, I want things to get done. I want things to get finished the Lord deals with me and recognizes there's just some things that will never get done and will never get finished, right? And so I was, I was thinking and praying and, and going through this. The serenity prayer came to mind. And it was written by Reinhold Niebuhr. He was an American theologian, professor, and minister, born at the end of the 19th century. He was born in 1892, and he died in 1971. And I think a lot of us have heard perhaps the shorter version the secularized, maybe, version of the serenity prayer. But it's a longer prayer. I want to read it to you. And, and, and sometimes things that become so familiar to us lose their impact because they become common. They become just words. But this, I believe, can speak to us. And I, and I want to read it. And I want to draw out some biblical foundations for the prayer. I want to read the long version. God, grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Now most of us probably thought it stopped there, but it doesn't. He continues and says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, 
and taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. So I look at this prayer together. God, grant me the serenity, the peace, the acceptance that comes not just from believing who Jesus is, but from trusting in who Jesus is. Give me a sense of peace, knowing that there's a heavenly father who's in control. You know, we all probably pray for our children, and I've prayed for my children for years. And years ago, in, in praying for my children and, and just really pleading with the Lord for their salvation, for their lives, I felt like the Lord reminded me gently, you know as much as you love them, I love them even more. And to this day, that brings me great joy to recognize that I'll continue to pray and plead and trust God with the lives of my children. To accept the things I cannot change. God, grant me the peace. Grant me the acceptance to recognize there is a limit to what I can do. As I mentioned, I like to solve problems. That's kind of the way I think. How can this issue be resolved? How can this process be improved on? How can we optimize? How can we become more efficient? It's a, it's a gifting in some sense. It can be very helpful in ministry, but it can also be very frustrating. Because I don't know about you, but things in life and people don't go and don't behave as planned. Last time I preached, I shared a quote, and I looked it up on Google because I was trying to find out where I heard it, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so we're going to attribute it to the Holy Spirit because this was a good one. If we plan, we get what we can do, and if we pray, we get what he can do. So strategy, that's good, and planning, and organizing, and all those things. But at the end of the day, there's a limit. At the end of the day, we can only do so much. You ever try to be the Holy Spirit in somebody's life? Right? I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's hard to recognize that as, as sort of overstepping or as, as bad because you want what's best for them. You love on them. But you're not the Holy Spirit. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. And there's been times I have to recognize. I remember years ago in ministry just dealing with, just for years, just this difficult situation. Over and over again. And then finally in my prayer, I, I was kind of told the Lord, I was like, I guess, you know, I guess this is it. I mean, this is just nothing else I can do. He's like, oh, is, 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 that, is that it? Is it over now? Like, should, should I step in? Or you, you, is this, is it final? <laughs> you know, it's almost like the Lord saying like, okay, you know. You've done what you can, now let me do what I can. You've been faithful, and that's good, but it's not over. I'm not done working. And sometimes it can feel like that, right? Sometimes we have people in our lives, we've exhausted every option, we've done everything we can, and then we throw up our hands, we're like, well, that's it. I guess, you know, they're never going to have another shot. You've got to trust God. They recognize 
Sometimes the best thing, thing we can do is create some distance and some space. Ministry's tough. It's even tough when you love people. Mm-hmm. Ministry's not that hard when everything's theory and, and you're, you're objective. But you know what? Life's not objective. When you walk with people through difficulty, when you see people make mistakes that hurt them and people around them, it's tough. It helps to recognize God's grace, grace and mercy and patience with us, though, doesn't it? We should pray. We should plan. And we should recognize the need for both. And we should recognize the limits of ourselves. I love Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Or my favorite translation, cease striving. And that sounds counterproductive. And I love the word cease because it sort of gives us indication of like a a halt, like an immediate stop. And then striving because it's not just like you're trying. It's not just like you're doing. It's like a concerted ongoing effort. You're striving. You're really working towards it. So it seems to suggest that you should immediately stop working towards something which is counter-American, right? That's counterintuitive. Except for the second part gives us a, a little bit more depth and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. My purposes will still come to pass. Cease striving is not a gentle reminder to be still. In fact, it's a command to stop immediately and recognize the awesome power of God. This verse encourages believers to reflect on who God is. But there's more to the psalm than that one verse. And we're going to see that verse 10 is actually more of a wake-up call. The command, be still, is written in the context of a time of much trouble and war. And so I want to read... Psalm 46, from the beginning. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. This psalm begins by stating a fact. This is who God is. We can't get to the place where we can even begin to cease striving if we don't recognize who God is. That he is our refuge. He is our safety. He is the place that we feel okay. That we can be insulated from all that's going on in the world. He is our strength. He is our power. And it says, he is a very present help in trouble. And I love that, right? Because he's not just present. He's very present. Pastor Jamie reminds us a lot of times... If you're not as close to God as you once were, who moved? The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The fact is, he is our refuge and he is our strength and he is a very present help in times of trouble. But we don't call on him. Instead, we plan and we ask for advice and we, we strategize and we read and then when we've exhausted our efforts, we think there's nothing else to be done. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but in my life, when I got to the end of me, that's when God was like, okay, you good now? You, you're all set? I mean, I, I'm going to step in, but I just I don't want to step on your toes. So let me know if you're done. You're done? Okay. Right? 
And it sounds so silly, but that's what we do. Lord, you know what? I'm going to let you know when I need you. And, uh, and then if you could just kind of help when I call you, but just, you know, stay away when I don't want you. And, and we, we sort of laugh at that, and it seems, but if, if I was the kind of friend where you called when you needed money, and I gave you money, and you called when, when you needed a ride, and I gave you a ride, you might like that relationship, but it would, it would hurt me. And yet, how many times do we do that with God? And then when he goes, I, I, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want to talk a little bit about our, our condition, our circumstance, because we've said before, and we'll, we'll get further into it, but God will meet us in our circumstance. He will meet us in our situation, no doubt about it, to bring attention to our condition. He didn't come here just to change our circumstance or our situ- situation. He came and he died to change our heart, to make us not better, but entirely New. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, so considering that, so because of that fact, now if we don't recognize that fact, you can't go to the next part. If your refuge and your strength is in a bottle or in a pill or in a relationship and it's not in God, then you, don't, you can't go to the next part. You're going to be good when things are good and bad when things are bad, and you're not going to have peace unless things are relatively peaceful, which is like never the case, right? But therefore, if God is, if you recognize that, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I love like nature shows, National Geographic, all that stuff. You ever see like a tsunami or a tidal wave or you ever see when creation, you know, when things happen and it makes us feel how small we really are. You know, you're on the ocean and you look and it's beautiful and peaceful and then suddenly it's the most violent thing ever, right? Even in the midst of that, we don't have to fear. Even in the midst of pandemics and political division and financial struggle and personal sin, even in the midst of all that, he is still a very present help in our time of trouble. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. How he's make wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then, and then... We get to verse 10. After we recognize who God is, is, and what God's done, and what God continues to do, and who we are to rest in in the midst of everything, after that, then it says, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He will build his church. 
He will. Do we want to participate in that building or do we want to be spectators? His purposes will be accomplished. He is with us. Recognize his power and sovereignty and trust in him to do what only he can do. A pastor in South Carolina was reading an article and he points out that this be still, it's the same thing Jesus says to the wind and the waves in Mark, 40, Mark 4.39. It's not like a, hey, chill out. It is a resounding, stop it. Stop striving and worrying and, 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 you know, just spinning your wheels. Recognize the awesome power of God. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He says this, there is a silence and a stillness that should overtake us in the presence of someone that is so overwhelmingly holy and glorious. The call then for all of us is to be still before our holy, awesome, and glorious God. God's goal in being with his people is so that they can accomplish his purpose to spread the knowledge of him so that more people can come to know him. And we must recognize that there are certain things that we can't do anything about. Every, every, um, every test I ever take, personality tests, I've done them in business settings and ministry, every test I ever, ever take, I'm like high diplomat, problem solver, and like, so in my mind, if we could just talk about it, if we could just plan, if we could just work through it, we'll solve it. We can, we can figure anything out, except when we can't. And that's okay. Prayer is at the beginning, prayers in the middle, prayers when we've exhausted, when we've come to our end, recognizing, okay, Lord, I've been faithful to do what I can do because we're going to look at the next part. God, grant me the serenity, the peace to recognize, to accept the things I can't change. And we've got to come there in our own lives, in the lives of other people, things we can't change. In every single sermon, I use this quote, Land Ravenhill. A sinning man stops praying, and a praying man stops sinning. Because every one of us, we want to stop sinning in our lives. And we come to church, and we, 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 we come to Jesus, we trust in him, we recognize all this is, as spiritual transactions, and then we think we're going to do it in our own effort. I want to stop. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to stand. I'm not going to go out. I'm going to, like Paul to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what began in the spirit are you now trying to do in the flesh? You think it's by grace you've been saved and then it's your own effort you stay that way? It's your own effort that you run away from sin? No, so what is, what is Ravenhill saying? A praying man stops sinning. And a sinning man stops praying. What is he saying? He's saying that if you're, if you're caught up in a pattern of sin, that the answer is to fall deeper in love with Jesus. The answer is not to just, in your own effort, to stop it's, you know, in, in addiction or in psychology, there's this replacement theory. It's not just about not doing the wrong stuff, but it's about doing the right stuff. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Spend time with the right people more. Fall deeper in love with Jesus more than you love your own sin. If not, you keep saying, I want to stop doing that. I've tried to stop doing that. I, I, I. And the problem is that it's all you trying. And then what happens? You get discouraged. Well, I can't do it. Well, that's the end. Well, No. 
No, actually, that's the beginning. And I, I don't want to get into my testimony. I've shared before. I thought it was over. I'm in a bro- rehab in Brockton, 33 years old, away from my wife and kids. Oh, yeah, this is good. This is, this is the end of my life. I'm done. And it was the beginning. David, at any moment in his life, Paul, at any moment in his life, Joseph, at any moment in his life, you and I, at our worst, we could have been like, this is it. I'm done. And when we say that, we, we throw up our hands in discouragement, God goes, oh, good. I've been waiting for you to say that your whole life. And see, we can't let what we cannot do stop or discourage us from doing what we can. And, and when I say what we can, I don't mean what we are, you know, it's optional like the great suggestion. It's what we are commanded to. What we are commissioned to do. It's not, go, it's not like go to church and then, you know, give and serve. And oh, by the way, asterisk, if you really want to make disciples... It's not the great suggestion. It's not optional. If you're a Christian, you were given the ministry of reconciliation. You were given that. Not just me, not just Pastor Jamie, the other pastors, all of us. If you're a Christian, we've been given that. Paul says, you've been reconciled to God. You've been made right in his eyes. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. What kind of person are we if we keep that for ourselves? That gift we're told to give to everybody. And then it says the courage to change the things I can because it takes courage. See, it's one thing to say, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And then we go, well, I guess there's nothing I can do about that. So uh, I'll see you. I mean, Pastor Brian, I prayed, I tried. I don't know, there's nothing I can do. Here, you guys, you know, maybe you, can, maybe you can do something. I'm done. That's not what that means. That's never what that means. The courage. Because it takes courage. It's easy. The default setting is always wrong. It's always do nothing. At any point in your life, I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, you hit autopilot and you're going to cruise into the wrong thing. You have to fight to do what is good. God will empower you. His spirit will enable you. But you have to participate. But it takes effort and work. I've said before, you don't need to teach your kids to do the wrong thing. That is their default. You need to teach them to do the right thing. So here's some things we can do and change. First, don't stop fighting against your own sin. Don't stop. I just talked about the solution. Fall deeper in love with Jesus. Pray more, but don't stop. Don't give up. Don't say, well, you know, I deserve this, or, you know, this is my fault. Or, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I've always been that way. Well, you've always been a sinner. We've all always been sinners, but Jesus died, so you don't have to stay that way. That's kind of how that works. Well, you know, I grew up that way. My father was like that way. My grandfather, nope, that's not. The Bible says if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, completely gone. And the newest come. That's a spiritual transaction. That's not anything you did. Don't diminish the work of Jesus on the cross by saying, well, that's the way I'm always going to be. Jesus didn't die so you and I can be the way we always were. He died to set us free. Don't stop fighting against your own sin. Don't settle. 
And I've said before that this, this I, I, somewhere in my ministry, I came up with this definition of sin, and, and, I, and I continue with it, is that it's a cheap substitute for something better God has for you. That's what sin is. Don't settle for a cheap imitation when God has something better. Be gracious with others. Be honest and true about your own sin, about your own life. We fool ourselves. We minimize the things in our life we shouldn't minimize. And then when somebody else does something, we're so quick to point it out. As an example, if I said, list 10 things that are wrong with you, you might have trouble. If I said, list 10 things wrong with your spouse, you'd be like, I got 25. I haven't even started yet. (laughs) Jesus had something to say about logs and specks. Pretty big example, isn't it? Because it's a pretty big problem. Here's another one. Don't play church. With all the love I have for you, don't play church. Don't pretend. Don't compartmentalize Jesus. You know, Jamie and I did that most of our lives. I said before, you know, you've heard about like barroom philosophers. I was like a barroom apologist. I'd be like in barrooms drinking, trying to tell everybody about how God was real. And was like... Now, before you criticize, and I don't suggest doing that, I was struggling. I was, I was really, I was, I was fighting for light and darkness. And, I, and I, was trying to, I was trying to reach up to him, and I was trying to tell everybody, there's got to be something better. There's got to be. That's not the way I would suggest to do it. But what I'm saying is that God had begun to work in my heart. We've got to recognize. Don't play church. I would do that, and then on Sunday I would go to church. And God had me in a process, and I thank God he didn't leave me in that. But there's some people that that's how they live. Bar on Friday, church on Sunday, or whatever it is. I mean, that's just one example. But there's compartmentalizes. We play church. We come here and, you know, we put on our Sunday best, or we put on a T-shirt and shorts. But either way, <laughs> I bought the shirt here, so that counts, right? <laughs> and then everybody says, hey, how you doing? We're like, oh, I'm great. Because we don't want them, because this is whole, we, we want to be fully known and fully loved, but we think if we're fully known, we can't be fully loved, and so we, we're great. Everybody's great at church, except nobody is. Don't play church. This isn't religious commitment or tradition or spiritual exercise. It's not something that you feel good about or check off your list. Being a Christian is known as the way. It was a way of being. It was a part of something. It was a community to belong to. A community is friendships. In a community and friendships, you find support and encouragement and truth and motivation and accountability. And you find good examples against the advice of the worldly bad advice you get out there. You learn and serve together. There's an opportunity for growth and to help and be helped. You meet the needs of one another. That's what community looks like. And if your church isn't your community, if you're like, well, I have my church people, but these are my real friends. Well, what kind of advice have they given you? Because we all have that friend when we want to do the wrong thing. We know we call them up and they will give us the worst advice ever, right? They're like that pocket bad advice friend. It's like, hey, I want to do this. Yeah, do it. Sounds great. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Acts 2.42 is a description of a spirit-empowered church, and it's also the blueprint. 
We read in the beginning of Acts about how they were in the upper room. They were a bit confused. Jesus had left them. They're still wondering about their circumstance. They're still wondering about their situation. Lord, when, when are you going to come and restore the kingdom of Israel? When are you going to make us preferential? When are you going to set us apart from all these evil people in the world? When are you going to give us, the church, our proper place? When are you going to make things easier for us? And Jesus just says, wait, be obedient. And you know what? They don't understand. But they wait. And they're obedient. Wait for how long, Jesus? Wait for what, Jesus? Just wait. Just be obedient, church. We've got to learn to wait and be obedient, don't we? God does care about our circumstance. I just mentioned it. He does care about our situation. He will meet us in that. And oftentimes, he'll meet us in that in a tangible way. But he didn't come here just to improve your circumstance. He came here to bring attention to your condition. And most of the time, in our circumstance, when things go bad, we recognize our limitations, our need of him. And we have an opportunity to recognize his power and his strength and his grace and his goodness and his beauty and his peace. If only we get out of our own way. So they're in the upper room, not because they understood, because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. We need to learn together, church, to wait for God to move. Because we see that in Acts 2, the Spirit comes. It's not explainable. It's supernatural. And there's sort of three groups of people. And I'm going to read about it and point that out to you. In the second chapter of Acts, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They were waiting. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't have instructions. They were waiting on God. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, well, not all of these who are speaking Galileans. So I want to point out, so there are people, there are God's faithful people who are waiting, and they don't know, they're just obedient. They, haven't, they don't have a plan. They, they don't have a, an expectation at a certain time. This is what's going to happen. They're just waiting on God because Jesus told them to. And then they receive his power, his spirit, his grace. And so that's one group of people. They're those who receive what God had. Then there's another group of people who witness it. And they recognize it. It says they're devout men. And they see it's a move of God. And and, and they're amazed by it. But then there's still one more group of people in verse 13. But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Others were on the sidelines, and they were making fun, saying they must just be drunk because it didn't fit in their box, in their paradigm of what God should 
and could do. I, I wonder today, if that happened, would we, would we be among those who receive God's spirit? Would we be the spectators trying to figure it out? Or would we be the mockers? Because immediately after this, the same Peter who denied he knew Jesus preaches his sermon and at least 3,000 people get saved. Revival happens. The church that's being built is still being built. The church that we're invited to be a part of together, to not just witness, not just say, hey, look, God's doing something. That might be God. Because you can look all around you and you can see God working in this church in the lives of people. And you can experience that. You can be like, look at that, that's God. Or you can sit back and be like, I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to a different church. <clears throat> Become a partner in the community. Don't just witness and observe. Participate. We can't do it all, nor should we. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And I said last week, and somebody after was like, ooh, that was a tough one, Pastor Brian, so I'll repeat it. I mean, that's what you do with tough stuff, right? If your wife serves in the church, that doesn't count for you. Men. Oh, my wife serves. Good for her. Has nothing to do with you. Silence. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. They committed themselves. It was their pattern. It was their way of living to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They had the courage to do what they could do. They read the word. They taught and learned. They prayed. They hung out and ate together. They did ministry together. They didn't just plan weekly events. They did life together. They existed in community. Koinonia, special fellowship. And the result, verse 43, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God showed up. It was unexplainable. It wasn't what they could do. It was what he was doing in and through them. And then it says, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to those who had need. In other words, rather than be self-focused, they were others-focused. They didn't see themselves as individuals focusing on their own pursuits. They saw themselves as part of a community. They were a people of God. They were set apart for a special task. They were... Incidentally, the church. We get so wrapped up with our own stuff and our own needs, and here's the thing, we like mess out. It's like we're on the beach and we're building all these sand castles, you know? And we're spending so much time and everybody's got their own castle. And we're walking up and down the beach and we're like, boy, your castle's amazing. And it's just an ocean wave's gonna come and it's all gonna be gone. And God's like building mansions. I want you guys to be... Part of this. Community. The people of God. Doing the work of God. You know, in the first century, the idea to Paul or anyone else that you could say, I'm a Christian, and then have no fruit in your life, have, have the idea of being a Christian just mean a set of beliefs, would have been so foreign they wouldn't even have understood that. Like the fact that nowadays you can be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, 
and have that mean absolutely nothing at all? That would have been, they would have been like, oh, you're a Jesus follower. You'd be like, well, no, no, not necessarily. But I mean, I, I, I think the right way. They would have been like, no, that's not what that is. That's not what that means. And here's the thing. We're missing out. <laughs> See, the enemy's got us convinced that, and, and, and I understand that the world thinks this way, but the enemy's got us convinced that the way to purpose and meaning and value is to pursue our own stuff, and then we do it, and then we never quite feel, but we think, well, maybe the next thing, maybe the next raise, the next house, the next, and then we never get there, but we still think, well, maybe the next thing, and meanwhile, Jesus is going, that's not it. In fact, you're missing out what it means to be alive. Matthew 16, verse 24, he tells his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, anyone, there's no group of people that are, that are not included, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit the man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? A lot of questions there, right? How should we deny ourselves? What's our cross? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What could we gain in exchange for our soul? How do you save your life by losing it and lose your life to find it? As Jesus often does, he's speaking in both the physical and spiritual here. There's nothing you can do to extend your life. At the end of the day, no matter how far medicine advances, we're all going to die. If we spend all of our efforts trying to preserve our earthly life, one day we're still going to lose it. Because this physical life is temporary, and that's the point Jesus is making. If all of your focus is on, a, on the temporary, you've missed the eternal. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. It doesn't say you might. It doesn't say perhaps. It's not conditional. It says if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Jesus is going, in me, and surrendering to me, and obedient to me, everything you've been looking for, peace, freedom, joy, Meaning, purpose, value, everything is there. What would it look like if we believed that, church? Instead, we keep making mud pies. Instead, we keep pursuing the things that never fulfill. And the thing is, we know it. Because when we live that way, we're unfulfilled. Temporary satisfaction, we trade it. C.S. Lewis says, if we ever experienced real joy, real Christian joy for a moment, we wouldn't, trend, we wouldn't uh, give it away for all the pleasure in the world. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Not just deny yourself and take up your cross. And then follow me. It means let me lead you. And you know what else it means? I'm with you. I'm there. He's not going anywhere. See, you want to follow me? Make me the priority. Get rid of all the other stuff that's never going to do it anyway. Give your life to me and I'll preserve it. Even with all the world's resources, we can't preserve our lives, but Jesus can preserve our lives forever. And so we lose our life to Christ by giving it to him to do kingdom work. 
No matter how much we accumulate, it won't help us if we don't have our salvation. If we are rich in this life and we don't trust Jesus, we have nothing. And someday it and we will be gone. You know, it's kind of a joke and teen challenge, but we'd have, you know, we were, everybody's in a program, living in Brockton, six guys in a room. So you'd see, like, nice stuff, like, you know, you'd go out and you'd, you'd be at the storefront in Walmart or somewhere, and you'd see nice cars or whatever, and so the joke would always be, like, it's all going to burn. So somebody was like, dude, I love that Porsche. That's nice. We'd be like, it's all going to burn. <laughs> and it was funny, but it was also a nice reminder that that was true. That what God was doing, as much as we were like, you know, guys in a lousy place in Brockton, and it was just chaos. But it was beautiful. Best, I mean, best time of my life. And I like nice stuff, and I don't like rooms with other people. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Because God was in it. And you could see him working. He came into the world for our Benefit. Benefit. He lived a sinless life under the law of God that condemns us, but then he took our sins and paid the penalty. We're able to live our lives to help others because God gave his, Jesus gave his life for us. And now he asks us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, to put him first in our lives and to show it in our actions, to bear whatever cost there is to be a Christian. And there are some cases and places in the world that this does mean persecution and physical suffering. And for most of us here, it doesn't. And I love you, but as your pastor, when you think persecution is being made fun of at work because you read your Bible, cry me a river. That's not persecution. Have courage to read it the next day. And the result is that when we live as witnesses in this world, Acts 2.46 says, day by day. In other words, ongoing. As a result, continuously attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They, this wasn't under compulsion. They weren't like, oh, we got to meet again. They weren't like, you sit next to him. I don't want to sit next to him. I don't like sitting next No. Glad and sincere hearts. Generous hearts. They were praising God, and they had favor with all the people. And it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Have the courage to do what we can. To be who he's called us to be. Not just individually, but collectively as his people set apart for his purposes to do his work. And then when we do that, it's attractive. And people are like, what is up with those crazy CFC people? They're always happy, giving away hot dogs and backpacks and loving on people and smiling. What is up with them? Be like, we are crazy, but we're crazy for Jesus. See, we're called to be like Jesus. And you'd be like, Pastor Brian, that's so hard for me to do. No, that's not hard for you to do. That's impossible for you to do. But if you allow him full access, it's not impossible for him to do. Don't let what you can't do stop you from doing what you can do. God wants us to use us to build this church. So are you doing your part? 
Do you share your faith? Do you invite people to church? Are you serving and giving? Or are you just a spectator? And if you're a spectator, Jesus' invitation, my invitation is get involved, plug in. The reason why we talk about community groups isn't because we just want to check, oh, we have so many people. It's because that's where transformation happens. Because that's, the New Testament was written to small groups of believers. I would love to have you all over my house for dinner. I would love for us to all hang out all the time. And I'm slowly checking down a list. I've hung out with a lot. But you know what? I can't. But you know what we can do? We can do that. We can have little groups, communities, and you know what? Everybody's like, I love my group. Why are you breaking it up? I got to know those people. I'm good friends. The people that I didn't know before and now I'm good friends with, guess what? Now you can meet other people you don't know before and be good friends with them, and eventually we could kind of know each other. And then we're like, hey, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Well, actually, no. And so I know it's not the most comfortable thing, but it's the best thing. Most of the time, comfortable stuff. I mean, most of the time when something's comfortable, we're not growing, right? It's about growing. And if you've never been in a community group, I can't, that is essential to your faith. I can't stress that enough. You are in a community group in your life somewhere. It's just look around and figure out who your community is. And is that filling you? Is God nourishing you? Is he using that? I know we all say we're busy, but my my wife likes to remind me we make time for what's important. And then when I tell her how busy I am and how my list is, then she's like, oh, You're on episode three on that Netflix show that just came out. Oh, I thought you were so busy. Darn it. (laughs) We make time for what's important. Get involved. The most discouraging thing to me in all my years of ministry is the actions of people who claim to be Christian, but when you look closely at them, they think that just means thinking a certain way. that you have to agree to a particular set of facts. That's an ideology, not a lifestyle. The Pharisees did that. They did it well. They did it better than most of us. And so people want people to think like them, and they tend to think their way of thinking is the only way, their preferences are superior, and that's how cults are formed. And if your faith only changes the way you think, but doesn't change the way you live, that's religion. That's not the gospel. In fact, that's the opposite with the gospel. That's about what we can do. And the gospel is about what he can do, what he did, and what he does. See, people can change our idea. Institutions can change our idea experiences can change our ideas only God can change our heart only God can make us entirely new the gospel is that Christ came he changed not just our mind but he changed our hearts and we're called to love him with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and in Hebrew the word heart is not an organ that pumps blood it's the center of your being it's everything you are So our invitation is not to play church, is not to compartmentalize. It's to love God with our thoughts, our actions, our spirit, and our will, not just with our words. Not just saying, I love God, like we say, I love pizza. But living in such a way that when people look at us, they they see, not that we're perfect, not that we got it figured out, 
with that we love God. Through faith in him, he changes our heart and he changes our condition and he changes our, he makes us entirely new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Authentic faith will always produce works. Authentic faith, faith will always produce works. A changed and a changing life is the result of and expected after putting faith in Christ. And Paul understands this very well, which is why in Romans 12 he says this, Therefore, considering, because of, in light of, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so because of what God's done, he's grounded everything there. Uh, Romans is Paul's most deeply theological work. And Paul's going, look, because of God's mercy in your life, because of what he did in your life, because of what Jesus did on the cross, offer yourselves in response. Give your life back to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's what we do. This is true and proper worship. It's the least of what you can do. He wants not just your finances and your time and, he, and you to have the right understanding. He wants those things. Those are important, but those are secondary. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him the way he loves you. Whenever I read a deconversion story, it's always a set of facts that somebody believed and then they didn't. It's never about a love story where somebody was in love and then they fell out of love because if you love Jesus and you recognize he loves you, you can't unknow that. But if it's just a set of facts to you, if it's just thinking the right way, then your mind can change one way or the other. It can be said, and then Paul says this in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That can be said this way, live differently, don't just think differently. If you're thinking differently, doesn't cause you to live differently, that's not transformation, that's information. And it says, then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll say, Pastor Brian, I don't know what, what God's will is for my life. Well, I do. It's to give yourself fully to him. It's to no longer adopt to the cultural standards, to the patterns of the world, but instead be transformed by the new, new mind God gave you and the power God gave you to live differently. See, religious people are almost always critics. When Jesus came, it was the church, people he had the biggest problem with, the people who knew better. And they used their knowledge not to minister, not to love, not to teach, but to set themselves up here. And Jesus came, what did he do? He washed feet. He hung on a cross. And we don't want to be a little uncomfortable. Well, I go to church, it was hot out. I go to church, but you know, my friend invited me to. See, the, the religious critics, rather than join God's, God's work, rather than experience God's work or participate in it, they either stand on the sidelines Make suggestions, helpful suggestions. Do you have any? I have a helpful suggestion for you. Oh, great, thanks. I mean, sometimes it's true. No, I'm not making fun of real helpful suggestions, you know. There's people who always have helpful suggestions to everybody else. You know those people? 
And you want to be like, I got like 50 for you, but I'm not going to say that. There are people who experience and who are part of God's work. There are people who are just speculators. Sometimes they'll give advice. And then there are people who mock on the sidelines. I don't think God does that. I don't think he shows up that way. I don't think that's of him. I don't think, okay, all right, I know. And so when there's something they can't explain or doesn't fit their box of what God should look like, they're like the people in Acts who mock the spirit because they don't recognize the spirit. Because they're too concerned with their own comfort. And so sadly, they sit in churches week after week until they leave and they find another church and they sit in that one week after week and they miss out. And here's the thing, right? We all have those tendencies in us. And so we can either feel bad or guilty or get angry or we can repent. Be like, Lord, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, want to, I don't want to look down on somebody who hasn't maybe walked in victory in an area where maybe you've given me some grace. I want to love and I want to help. If you can't speak to people, even other Christians that are in your, in your you know, relationship with you in your community, and you can't speak to them in love and you can't provide correction to help them, don't say anything. Don't say anything. If your motive isn't out of caring, then don't say anything. Because we can do more harm than good. Sometimes it's subtle, this critical spirit. Other times it develops over years and years and years. It's from woundedness. Who knows the source of it? From insecurity. Whenever anyone's prideful, you know, the, the source of pride is always insecurity. Whenever somebody's really, really prideful to you, and remember, I said this, as a pastor, I can recognize it's so, it's so easy not to like prideful people. And then when you ask for a heart like Jesus, and when you ask to see people the way Jesus sees them, you recognize that people are only overtly prideful if deep down inside they're insecure. It's a lot easier to love an insecure person, isn't it? So God can set us free from anything, from even religion from a system of thinking, and he can free us into a way of living, a way of caring for others, a way of seeing other people, even those people, in a different way. Jamie preached a good, a good word last week. Sometimes it's tough to hear. This message may be tough to hear, but it comes out of love. I need to hear it. This isn't me preaching to you. This is God's word, like week after week, preaching to all of us. And Jamie mentioned that him and I, at one point, we were in the church. We knew the right truths, and we compartmentalized it. We had our church life, and then we had a whole other life. And thank God in his grace and mercy, he brought us into a, into a full community of faith. But I wonder how many people are still walking in, in both of those worlds. Unsteady, right? Not sure where your foundation is caught up in ideas that lead to emotionless dead religion with no power and no spirit and no freedom and no peace. We set, we set financial goals. We set physical goals. I mean, some people set physical goals. I, I got to work on that. But How about we set spiritual goals? We work so hard on keeping the outside of the cup looking good. Gym, clothes, makeup, shoes, and inside many people are dying and empty and lost. 
And so the solution is prayer and the word and community and solitude. And here's the thing, church. When you're a Christian, there's no such thing as solitude. Solitude just means time with just Jesus. It means removing the distractions and listening and making space for the still, small voice. It means having a prayer life where you're not doing all the talking, you're doing all the listening. It means taking time to be comfortable with silence, to remove the distractions. We need godly wisdom to know what to do, when, and how. To recognize the limits of what we can and can't do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Then we need to have a heart like Jesus. We need to love people enough to give our lives to the calling, to that ministry of reconciliation. And we must pray that God gives us the wisdom to know the difference, to recognize his realm and ours, and to work together with him to realize what he can and will do in and through each of us. It's amazing what happens when his power and his strength and our will and our obedience come together. Revival happens. God builds his church. He daily adds to their number those who are being saved. And so I want to invite you, if you've not given your life to Jesus, if you never trusted in him, if it's been empty religion, if it's just been compartmentalized, to just give your life to trust Jesus. To have a, an active, vibrant faith that's not just simply believing certain things. It's important to understand the word of God, to know the character of God, to know the Bible as absolute truth. But the Bible points to Jesus. The reason we have the word is to fall in love with him. And if you've given your life to Jesus, but you continue to have your priorities way off, you continue to build your own sandcastles instead of participating in what he has for you, I invite you to go deeper in your walk with him. And so the altars are open, and whether you give your heart to Jesus for the first time or whether you give it back to him because you recognize he hasn't had your affection, I pray that you do that. I want you to stand and close your eyes, and I want to read the serenity prayer one more time before we close. And I want you to just listen. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, my past, my sin, maybe my situation. Lord, give us the courage to change the things we can, trusting in you right now, Lord. And give us godly wisdom to know the difference, to recognize the spiritual reality as well as the physical. And help us, Lord, together to live one day at a time, to enjoy one moment at a time, to accept hardships as a pathway to peace, seeing an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus, to lean into him, to go deeper, taking as he did the sinful world, not as we would have it, but Lord, trusting that you will make all things right if we surrender to your will, that we may be reasonably happy together in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. 
Lord, this morning, help each of us to accept your invitation and experience true serenity.